Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on Dan's Talks is Ricky Kleeman, who is the legal analyst for uh, CBS News and often talks about legal matters. She's an attorney. She was uh, at one time selected as one of the six most prominent women attorneys in America by Time Magazine. And uh, she uh, has been coming out to Quag, is it, I think, since- uh, Now Hampton Bays, but originally Quag for many years. And uh, I guess we'll ask about the move. And her husband is uh, Bill Bratton, the former uh, police chief of New York and before that, Los Angeles. Tell us how you first came out to the Hamptons, first of all. My first real memory of the Hamptons is when I was dating Bill Bratton, and he brought me out for an afternoon, and I think it was early September. It was just after the season had ended, and it was definitely not Tumbleweed Tuesday, so it was probably the following week, and we went uh, and took a drive through West Hampton, Quag, East Quag, Hampton Bays, Southampton. At that point, we stopped in Southampton, had a bite to eat at the driver's seat, and uh, walked uh, the beach, went down to Cooper's Beach. It was pretty deserted because it was after the season back in those days, around 1997. And we walked the beach for hours. It was a perfectly beautiful day. And I really understood why people fell in love with the East End. Why was that? Why is that? And has it changed? Uh, yes, it has changed. I fell in love and I'm still in love with the East End and I will be in love with the East End till I have my last breath. I consider it my home. When people ask me, where do you live? My answer to that is Hampton Bays. We uh, certainly have lived there full time since March 12th, uh, 2020, as many people came out at the time of the pandemic. And we had always gone from 1998 uh, through 2020, we were people who went every weekend, all four seasons. And it was the place where I felt as soon as I passed Stargazer on, on at exit 70, I felt my blood pressure literally go down. And I was heartbroken during these recent years as Stargazer was um, in very, very difficult straits. Uh, back up, now back up and fixed. It's so fabulous. And I contributed to the GoFundMe site. <laughs> I felt that Stargazer was so important to being a symbol uh, of getting out to any of the towns uh, in the Hamptons. And what I fell in love with was, if I can describe it as such, it's the rhythm. It's the rhythm of 
how you feel in an environment in that gorgeous light. It is not a myth to say that there is something called Hampton's light. It is true. It is those long uh, rays of light that make it so wonderful for uh, photographers and artists. But there's something about it enhances the beauty of everything around it. And so my, when I walk there, I feel differently. When I breathe the air, I feel differently. Uh, and I was a city girl. I grew up in Chicago, lived in New York, then Boston, then New York, then LA, then New York. And um, I never thought in my lifetime that I would consider a place particularly other than New York, as my home. And I, we still do have an apartment in New York, though we gave it up during the pandemic and through a variety of circumstances, we're able to get it back. But we are there very rarely. We rent uh, that apartment. And my home, which Bill and I own, is where I feel I am most myself. Tell me what you enjoy most doing when you're out here? There can be no question that the thing I enjoy most doing is walking. We walked always uh, together and I also walk myself. And there are a couple of my women friends that I walk with from time to time. But we walk in a different town all the time. So say during a pandemic week, we might walk on Monday in Hampton Bays, on Tuesday in Quag, on Wednesday in West Hampton, and on Thursday in Southampton. Uh, we do walks in all kinds of weather, unless the rain is, makes it intolerable to walk. And I actually like to walk in the snow unless we're in the middle of gale force winds. But we walk four seasons a year. And the beauty of the Hamptons on these walks are really what I think centers me for the course of the day. In addition, as many people will say, what they love about the Hamptons are the beaches. They are extraordinary. Uh, and there can be no doubt, if anyone knows our lifestyle, we eat out a lot. And I love the restaurants in the, in the Hamptons. Um, obviously, we have favorites that we frequent all the time. But there is a feeling of a sense of community if you go back to certain places over and over again, uh, whether it's for us, it could be a breakfast, a lunch, and of course, most often a dinner. When you, when you walk, do you walk uh, everywhere or do you favor beaches or woodlands or uh, downtowns? We walk beaches, but during the less tolerable weather, we certainly walk on streets. And one of the things, I can give you an easy example. In our walk in Southampton, which is my favorite walk, we have a short walk and we have a long walk. Uh, if we do the long walk, what we will do is we will park the car in front of Sip and Soda. Uh, in, in fact, any walk I do in Southampton, the car is parked in front of Sip and Soda. And I want to go back to Sip and Soda a bit later since I think it is the town hall. It is the Times Square. It is this, it's where all news of the village happens. 
is at that counter at Sip and Soda, uh, presided over by Mark Parrish, where I learn everything that is happening in the village of Southampton and uh, meet wonderful people. Some are rich, some are poor. Um, some are white, some are black. Some are Latino, some are Native American. It's a place of quality of people who want to get together and share things at that counter. It's very rare to ever see us in a booth. Um, so we park the car at Sip and Soda. We will walk past the school, uh, go to Little Plains Road. We will walk Little Plains Road all the way uh, to the beach. We will go on the sand, look at that glorious view of the beach. And then we come back and we will walk um, through Gin Lane, come back uh, all the way around uh, the pond, Agawam Pond, come down First Neck Lane, uh, down to, um, uh, as it leads you into town, you can eventually uh, get to Job's Lane and then come to Main Street, go back down and end up at Sip and Soda and have breakfast or lunch, depending on what time of day it is. You it is a, favorite walk. Do you wear a tracker to see how many steps you take every day? Yes. Um, in fact, my tracker is on now. I have a Fitbit. Um, I, it's, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's very bossy, that Fitbit, because even though it is not speaking out loud to you, it makes you compete with yourself. If you did 10,000 steps yesterday, you want to do 10,100 today. It's a, I track my heartbeat. Um, uh, I, I track how much exercise I'm doing. So I've become highly addicted to my Fitbit. And one of the things I love the most about it is I really love it when I do the long walk in Southampton. What and when, I, when I've done the short walk, I say, oh, I should have done the long walk. <laughs> what what do you what is it, does it get up over twenty thousand steps a day? It does not. Um, I'd say my average on a good week is about thirteen fourteen thousand steps. Right. And then, lest we think that I live this way all the time, I can look at December of twenty two and see uh, what a sloth I was. Um, whether it was that I was cold or whether it was that we were traveling our head company for the holidays. I mean, I had days where sometimes that Fitbit was at about 2100 and I hid my head in shame. No, not quite. <laughs> but it's uh, December was definitely a month that needed um, uh, a better January and I'm giving it a better January. So tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're doing in terms of uh... Uh, the law that you're involved in at this point, some things you're investigating and being part of for CBS. In my job at CBS News is really uh, the perfect job for me and, and particularly at this time in my life. I had anchored at Court TV. Uh, so back in those days, obviously that is not only a five day a week job, that is often a seven day a week job because we did trials gavel to gavel. So you could never get away from the live trial. I mean, it was a living, breathing thing. The closest, then, well, let's look at, that's anchoring. 
Then we have correspondents who are journalists. They go out to wherever the news is happening, whether it's political or whether it's a fire or whether it's a police incident or whatever happens to make the news. In my world, the correspondents who I would interact with the most because I am an analyst, I stay still. I am either in the New York studio or I'm in my home office talking on television the same way I'm talking to you now on Zoom. And my job is to analyze legal issues. It is not my job to have an opinion about whether someone is guilty or not guilty. It's my job to say today, these are the issues that happened. And on the one hand or on the other hand, this is the analysis. So before I get to today, say during the pandemic, the closest I felt to having a seven day a week job again was uh, happened twice. Once was the Trump impeachment hearings occurred while I was living in the Hampton Bays house. And so I had to watch them every minute of every day. And then at breaks, I would occasionally be asked to opine on the evidence that was being produced in the impeachment hearings. In, during the pandemic, there was also the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and that was the trial of the young man who, during the protests uh, after the George Floyd murder, had gone up to Wisconsin, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and had a long gun and had wound up um, uh, killing people at that protest. And he was, people may remember, after a long trial, he was in fact acquitted. So that was again, like a seven day a week job because you, you had to stay current with the trial. Where I am right this second, as I am talking to you, is um, I'm covering, but as an analyst, which means I'm in a bit of a hiatus on this case, is Brian Kohlberger, who is the young man who has been accused of murdering the four college students in Moscow, Idaho. That case had a lot of intensity for, during the month of January of 2023, and now is in a hiatus until he has his preliminary hearing in June. It doesn't mean that issues won't come up, but they will come up from time to time. And when that happens, I may get a call to talk about those particular issues. In addition, right now, as we sit here in the news, uh, certainly are the ongoing investigations concerning former President Donald Trump, which uh, have to do with Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents, have to do with January 6th. Both of those are now in the hands of a special prosecutor, Jack Smith. There is also a Georgia state investigation that's before a grand jury uh, involving allegations of electoral uh, interference. And we still don't know what's happening. So I'm kind of always 
reading, looking, as to what might happen with Letitia James' lawsuit against Donald Trump's family and Donald Trump, having to do with penalties that she is looking for on the civil side, and if in fact any prosecutor would decide to go forward with anything criminal from those cases. Just to make sure we are looking at both sides of an issue, I assume that it could happen that we, since we do have now a special prosecutor with Mr. Herr, Joe Biden, and his uh, taking of classified documents, that there may be uh, cases involving that, or there may not. So I'm in a position right now of reading lots of news outlets uh, every day, but not commenting on a regular basis unless and until something develops that would fall within my world, which is the purely legal world, not the political world. How did you uh, get to decide to become a lawyer a long time ago? What, uh, there were other things you were doing, including acting. I wanted um, to be an actress uh, from the time I was a little itty bitty girl. I, I don't even know where it first began. I probably was two, three or four years old. And uh, a person of my age, my favorite TV show was the Mickey Mouse Club and I wanted to be a Mouseketeer. And um, it, was, it was just in my blood. And um, I'm a performer at heart. And I like a lot of this, if I can get that, meaning applause. If I had stayed in the theater, I'm sure at this stage of my life, um, I would probably be on the unemployment line more often than on the stage. Uh, in my 20s, when I had gone to New York after being a theater major at Northwestern University, one of the great theater schools in the country, as well as being a great uh, university and academic institution. Uh, I had gone to an audition where there were 200 at least women in line who looked exactly like me. And we were all looking for the same part uh, in the casting of the Godfather movie, of Michael Corleone's wife, Apollonia in Sicily, who had a few lines to say. And as I listened to all of those women in the line, as the line snaked its way forward, I realized that I might be on that audition line for the rest of my life yeah. and decided not to do that anymore. And I had the good fortune of making a decision to talk to a professor of mine at Northwestern. And I went back to Chicago and I went to see Professor Franklin Heyman and he was a speech and debate coach. He um, had taught a pre-constitutional law course. I learned a great deal from him. Uh, and I said to him, I've wanted to be an actress all my life. And now I'm 24, 25 years old and I don't know what to do. And do you have any thoughts? And he said to me, you might think about going to law school. And I responded, uh, well, Professor Heyman, girls don't go to law school. 
because in those days they did not. And he said to me, no, but women do. And as I have often told the story with the gratitude that comes from the depths of my soul, uh, Professor Heyman in those four words changed my whole life. He encouraged me to take the LSAT and to take my performance skills and bring them into the world of litigation. And that's what I did. And I am so grateful that before he died, I found him decades later and thanked him for the profound influence he had on my life. Well, that's great. My mother was uh, the valedictorian of Brooklyn Law in 1936. Wow, she was truly a pioneer. And um, we lived in Montauk and people used to come out, women used to come out on pilgrimages to her. I bet. Yeah. Because even when I went to law school, um, I entered law school in 1972. And at that time, I think I'm right about this. I think that the percentage of women in law school at that time, now 40 years after your mother, was about 7%. Right. Mm-hmm. Today, the percentage of women in law school is over 50%. They have become the majority of students in law school. Yep. Well, thank you for being on this podcast. I'm interrupting this. We could go on forever with this, I think. So I've enjoyed this very much and uh, we will see each other again soon. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.